and welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester-Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. This week on the Product Science Podcast, I have a conversation with Patrick Campbell, founder of Price Intelligently, the company that puts out profit well. Listen on for our conversation about bootstrapping a startup, making hard decisions, and figuring out how much data you need to drive the good decisions. So Patrick, I'm super excited to have you on today. I've been following you. I think I I came across you maybe a uh, maybe like last year when I was listening to some podcasts um, from the uh, the microconf community, which I haven't been a part of, but I um, but I feel like a listener, like an eavesdropper. Um, yeah, it's a great community. I recommend you going um, sometime. It's just like one of those it's one of those things where you're just like ah, I'm not really sure what I'm going to get into, and it's it's just one of the most supportive communities I've ever uh, I've ever been you know even tangentially a part of. That's fantastic to hear. Yeah, so I came across you and I was, saw what you were doing and I said, this is some really great stuff um, and I wanted to hear more about it. So maybe to begin, um, I'd love to hear a little bit about sort of your origin story. What did you start off doing and how did you end up where you are today? Yeah, so I, my, my origin story, interesting. So yeah, I've, uh, I haven't, it's not, uh, it's not fancy, but I, I started, um, I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin, you know, one of those classic, you know, has more cows than people type towns. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that was, that was interesting. I, I come from pretty blue collar parents. Um, you know, my, my mom, you know, she worked on an assembly line and then worked her way up to being an administrative assistant and then worked her way up to, you know, running, um, you know, trade show marketing for a, a small electric motor company in Wisconsin. And my dad was a sheet metal worker, you know, built, um, basically steel and, you know, tin roofs for skyscrapers and things like that in Milwaukee. And then mm. went back to school and, you know, became an HVAC engineer. And so it's a very kind of, I, I, would, I would argue, very industrious family, you know, mm-hmm. always doing gardening and weekends, we wouldn't, you know, go on vacation. I mean, we did go on vacation, but we would more often than not do work, you know, do projects, you know, hey, mm-hmm. we want to build this or hey, we want to convert the basement, that kind of stuff. And I think that's, this is me kind of rationalizing and projecting a bit. I think that's where I picked up some of these traits. And then um, to kind of fast forward a little bit, I I wanted to be um, a doctor, which is kind of the standard blue collar, then become a professional, the next generation and stuff like that. Um, I ended up not really loving uh, it wasn't blood. It was just like the concept of, you know, being inside a human body was just a little intense for me. And so <laughs> I um, hear that. Yeah. And then I thought I was going to save the world and, you know, I was going to go to DC. And so I did a lot of, um, when I got to college, I went to school in Illinois and studied um, econometrics and math and, you know, thought I was going to basically help change the government and got a little mm-hmm. disenchanted working in DC for a bit. Yeah. And then, um, you know, did a bunch of internships in DC, ended up, you know, there working um, for the intelligence community a little bit, mm-hmm. and then ended up going to work at Google in Boston. And that's what led me to Boston. Um, and I've been here about a decade. I was at Google just for about a year and a half and then jumped out and joined kind of the startup community here and worked at, um, Boston-based Gemvara, which was like a kind of like a Blue Nile competitor, it was customizable jewelry, and that's where mm-hmm. you know, first started working on pricing, and that kind of led to the gateway of starting, you know, Price Intelligently, which is now Profitwell. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, fantastic. I really like the, the story. There's some things in there that actually you know, hit home for me. I also, uh, shortly out of school, worked for the government for a little while and was oh, cool. very disenchanted. I used to have this, uh, this picture on my desk about like the long game and just trying to remind myself like how to be patient for the slow change. But uh, ultimately, I, I spent a little bit of time doing that at the same time as um, going out in the evening to community events in the New York City tech scene. And I said, uh, well, why wait for the long game? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just jump on the fast train. Um, no, totally. Well, that was, that was my thing. I was just so disenchanted with like how slow things were. And I don't know, I think given some context now, like going back, I think I would be better to manage that. But when I was like a punk, you know, for like 20 year old kid like you know with his first job and trying to take over the world it just wasn't fast enough and and that was a lot of like young arrogance but yeah Mm -hmm. yeah I totally get that and for me it was also just my what do I want my days to be like like can I can I can I enjoy my life with this pace because I need the challenge I need the I need the things that keep me entertained it's super tough super tough too yeah, it is. Um, so, so many props to everybody who actually fights that fight because I'm like so grateful that people are doing it. Um, but so tell me a little more about um, getting Price Intelligently started. I, I recall having come across, I think you started with um, some productized consulting. Tell me more about that and how that grew into ProfitWell. Yeah, so we, it's, it's kind of funny. So we actually started off as a pure software company. And so for me, it was, and this is kind of a common theme. I was kind of like, you know, young hubris. I was working at a company I was kind of disenchanted with the culture, learned a lot about like what not to do. And, and I think it was, it was just, I understand why the culture was that way. It wasn't anything that was nefarious, but for me, it turned into, okay, so how do I, you know, if I'm going to take a chance, I might as well take a chance now because I can screw up a couple of times before, you know, it's really bad for my life. And so mm-hmm. I jumped out and, and we, we started off, it was just me full time and a couple had a couple of part time, you know, co-founders, which, you know, was not great. Um, mm-hmm. And it wasn't their fault. It just, it's a really bad kind of situation to be in, but we had a pure software product. And so this software product, it, basically took in data and then spit out after going through some algorithms that we developed some price elasticity and some relative preference data and things like that. And um, this was kind of the base of understanding pricing. And so the problem was, is that there was a hard, hard, hard educational curve mm-hmm. to someone understanding how to, you know, fix their pricing. Because one, a lot of people think it's like, oh, it's just like a one-time thing and then you move on. And in actuality, there's a lot of like monetization gold in those hills. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people think, you know, okay, I'm going to be able to understand this and I'm going to be confident. And in actuality, they're not really confident when they get the data to make decisions. And so we had a lot of these product problems with just a pure software product. And so what we did is we pivoted and we started, I don't know if it's an actual pivot, but we, we moved a little bit. We bobbed and weaved, however you want to define it. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, added in a service element to it where you said, okay, you can't buy the software product anymore. The only thing you can do is you can buy us and you get the software, but, but you know, you also can't buy us without the software. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't as if we would come in and just like, hey, like you want X, Y, Z and we'll just randomly do X, Y, Z for you. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, it was like, hey, this is what we do. 
if you if you're okay with what we do then that's awesome if not then we're we're not like the best you know product or solution for you and so that worked out really really well and i think that there's still a lot of bumps and bruises like we have it's it's not a home run yet the problem with having, you know, something that has a service element to it is that we have some customers who are amazingly happy. They're our biggest fans. They're our biggest advocates. We have a lot of people who, you know, they're, they're advocates and they're great, but then we have some bugs and we have some folks that like probably weren't really that great of a fit. Um, and we've learned to like say no to those people very early on. And then we have mm-hmm. some folks that like, you know, they just weren't a good fit in general from like a culture standpoint. And we weren't able to, you know, really know that until we got into it. And so we've had to learn to kind of fire customers and things like that. And that's kind of the problem that you run into with, with, you know, having any element of service to your product Mm -hmm. um, is that when you start to add people, uh, it starts to, you know, make things complicated for better and for worse. And so, yeah, it's just something to kind of think about in terms of, you know, the long game. And about a couple of years in, we were trying to figure out what was going to be the the wider products because we were looking for something that could kind of like democratize what we were trying to do across a wider base and so mm-hmm. that was kind of the origin story of ProfitWell where we started thinking about all right this is this is what we want to do this is where we want to focus this is what's going to help us you know feed with data um and, and kind of crank from there. And so, yeah, long story short, there, there's a lot to get into with ProfitWell and like how, you know, how that came to be and all that kind of fun stuff. But that's, that's kind of the, the straight up origin. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I think that's really interesting. I, I work with a lot of people who are at data-driven product companies and I guess I should qualify. What I mean by that is the actual product is a data-related product um, as opposed to a company where the product uses data to make the decisions. Um, and and they often come across this challenge of, of um, you know, you have some really smart, experienced people who have been in the position of using data, say, let me democratize this, let me build a tool, um, let me make it accessible because wouldn't the world all want to have access to this data? But... And that's an, an awesome step. But the thing is, is that most of the world doesn't know what to do with the data. And then, you know, getting them to understand why that's powerful and how it drives them to their outcomes. I feel like that's kind of the really, a really hard part that comes after that. I find it uh, fascinating to hear how you've attacked that and uh, how you've kind of went through some stages and even got to a point where you could say you might need to, to fire a customer. Do you have any... Um, do you have any like uh, specific stories you can share? I'm super curious how that how that went down. Yeah, it's it's like a terrible experience because it's like <laughs> you're sitting there and you're like, all right, this this person physically represents this much money, right? Like mm-hmm. like I feel like we've all read stories about like, oh, there's that fifty dollar customer who won't stop hammering our support and we just don't want to deal with them anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but with us, it's like, oh, this is a $100,000 plus customer. Mm-hmm. And that money is very, very real. And they're just not a really good fit. And so I think for us, we had to get in the position where we learned that that was okay. And I, I, I'll i be frank with you. Like, I, I think that we're, we're still not 100% of this. Um, mm-hmm. We're still getting a lot better at it. But I think that in a lot of cases, we ended up moving into a position where like we can identify what's good, what's bad. And so we, we've had a couple of customers where they like, 
we got brought in, um, you know, for, for one that I can, I can remember distinctly and I feel like I can share the whole story. We got brought in really early um, by a champion. And the mm-hmm. champion basically was the head of, I believe, products or the head of marketing. So one, one of those particular orgs, an important org within the organization. Um, they were a C-level executive. We thought everything was great. Um, we were ready to go. And what ended up happening is they signed the contract. Everything was awesome. High fives all around. Everything was going to be awesome. Mm-hmm. The problem was is that as we got into the, got into the deal, Pricing is something that is is felt and is something that's important to everyone in the company. And, and we've known this for a long time, but we, given the size of the organization, we we weren't thinking, oh, the CEO wasn't involved. We weren't thinking, oh, this person didn't, you know, confer with anyone. Mm-hmm. And we found out that that was actually the case. And so when we get into like our kickoff and like all this other stuff where we're going to start collecting data and all these things, all of a sudden, you know, the CEO is is basically what I like to call a Darth Vader. You know, mm. he is like, nothing's okay, nothing is good. He knows better than everyone. It doesn't matter what data you put in front of him. It's terrible. And so we we work really hard to like convert those types of people and, and we're really successful at like, okay, cool. Like this was a stutter step and now we get everyone involved before we even sign a contract just to make sure we don't run into this. But in this particular situation, it was like, everything. Like I got involved and I'm normally not involved in the front line anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one of those things where it was just like, this was, this was someone who like later he actually came back to us like a year and a half later and just deeply apologized. He was going through a bunch of personal stuff and that was just kind of making him, you know, very, very edgy and very off the handle. But it was just one of those situations that I had never dealt with before. And we got through basically some of the first sprint. So there was a lot of cost that was already associated with it. Mm-hmm. And we, it was just like, this is just not worth it. It's not worth the team. And he, he kind of went off on a team member that didn't do anything. And it was very cut and dry. And so after cycling through a bunch of different things, it was just like, listen, this is just not worth it. Um, so I got on the phone. I was like, hey, this doesn't, you know, let's, let's settle up. This doesn't feel like it's a good fit for all of us. And then I just felt bad because we had the person who was the head of marketing or head of product. I can't remember exactly their, their org. And they were just like, they needed this. And their company absolutely needed help. And so it was just one of those things where we're in this position, we're sitting there and we're like, you know, this person's clearly having a bad experience. There's probably some things that we could have done better and we implemented those, but there's a lot of this that was just completely out of our control. And it was just based on like the politics of the organization. It just, it just wasn't worth it. So we had to fire that particular customer. And so it's a really, really tough decision because you just want to, you know, you just want to fix it. Yeah. Oh, I I understand that so well. I mean, that definitely um, uh, is a situation that's real. And I, I think, um, so I, in addition to the work I've done, you know, I obviously talk to a lot of people in the industry. And I think one of the tricks to keeping yourself and your company healthy is uh, being able to identify when it's something you're not going to be able to change and uh, and being able to make that tough call and say, okay, like this isn't going to work. I'm curious what happened to the head of uh, the head of product or marketing there that had brought you in. Do you know, did you keep in touch with them? Did they end up moving on? Are they still there? So there, the head of marketing, I believe left. I think this whole thing kind of turned them off completely. And so, yeah, yeah it was a lot. Yeah. It sounds like the kind of thing that, uh, that, that you would end up moving on over. Um, Cause your boss makes such a difference in everything you do. Right. Totally. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Um, so tell me more, um, going back a little bit, one of the things that you said that hits on something I'm always trying to help people talk about and understand more is the vision and where you wanted to go and how the product you started to build with ProfitWell had to fit that. Because um, I think especially these days with Agile being a lot more pervasive than it was 10 years ago, people often fall into the routine and forget to look at the big picture. And I'm really curious to hear how, how have you handled that for the ProfitWell team, especially as the founder? Um, you know, how have you communicated the vision and how did that play a role in, in what got built? Yeah, I think like alignment is like one of those things that's just like deathly complicated within a company. And it's, it's just a nature of like humans. Um, like that's just like, like we all kind of like, like it's, it's not only we all kind of assume we know what's going on because if we didn't know what's going on, like why would we do it? Right. And then we kind of assume that people understand what we're saying at the exact same context and the exact same level as what we're saying. And so you're in this weird loop where it's not only we're all kind of moving like, because we're like, of course we need to move. And then we're kind of assuming that everyone's moving in the same direction. And in reality, everyone's moving everywhere. Right. And so I think we haven't nailed this like quite yet inside the organization. And so we're trying to figure that out ourselves, but we're working on um, trying to figure it out like both internally and externally. And when you throw in the fact that we're a multi-product company, all of a sudden it just gets super, super complicated. And so we've been working a lot on like what makes sense and like what, you know, is, is the, the best way to move stuff forward. Um, and I don't, I don't know if I really have an answer for it quite yet. I, I think what I found though, is that it's, it's a huge non-scalable um, like game of just kind of keeping things moving forward and constantly repeating yourself over and over and over again. Mhm. Yeah, that sounds that sounds about right. Um how how did you tell me a little bit about the um the product team that you have building the technology. I think a lot of the things that I've heard or seen about ProfitWell and about your background are at the sort of, you know, high level founder, but since we are are trying to help people who are also, you know, the right arm of the founder or the head of product or the director of product or, you know, maybe the first product hire or the first couple. How is that? Um, how has that evolved for ProfitWell? Do you have product managers in house and when did you hire them and how did you decide it was time? Yeah, I think for me, I very, very much, um, I, I think I, I don't know if I did this consciously. I think I got really lucky. Um, I, I want to say that I was conscious with this, but like I found, so we didn't have anyone. It was just me in a room for like 18 hours a day. And then we hired Peter who was a, you know, kind of head up sales. Um, and then we kind of grew and we're bootstrapped. And so it's not like we were like, Oh, let's just hire like five people and like get moving. And so what that led to was basically, um, us being in a position where we needed to kind of understand exactly like what was important and just be really comfortable with everything else being terrible. And 
what ended up happening is um, I was kind of struggling to find someone to lead a product and to kind of, you know, so looking for a CTO or a CPO or what that would look like. And fortunately, I got introduced um, by one of our first customers to Facundo, who's our CPO. And he was, um, you know, basically very, very non-negotiable on like, I need to run product, I need to run product, meaning him. And so that was like a little off-putting at first, but it, it, it turned out to be like the right decision. So like, basically like Facundo leads product and like, he's also a, you know, he was a principal engineer. And so it was kind of like the perfect match, you know, finding that unicorn of someone who can come into the company and run that side of the business and basically run it very, very well. And not, you know, we plenty of arguments, plenty of quirks, all that kind of fun stuff. And so that's helped us a lot. And now we're starting to build out our product team. So we hired, um, you know, just a really young up and comer, but like a really, really hungry um, guy named Neil out of, out of Northeastern. And he started, um, gosh, he's been here just over a year and now we're adding our second product manager. And so, we don't have, I would say like we, we try to imbue product throughout the organization as much as humanly possible. Um, and that allows us to just really understand exactly like what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. Um, but it's one of those things where there that it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit more ad hoc than it probably, you know, should be, if that makes sense. It totally makes sense. And I think, um, I hope I didn't make it sound like it should have been <clears throat> everything was planned out, but, uh, but oh, it, no, you know, it's totally fine. but some people, some people, they have very, very well planned out, um, you know, of what, what makes sense and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's true. But then the rest of us, uh, <laughs> we have, we have what, what happens when you're growing a company, especially, you know, bootstrapping, uh, like you guys have been, uh, can be messy and you, you, you just figure it out and you try. And I am a big fan of sharing the, this is, this is what we tried and here's where we are. So tell me more about, um, I guess I'm curious what, it sounds like you trust Facundo as your, uh, your chief product officer and that he's beginning to grow his organization. Do you have any thoughts on what makes, um, what makes him good at what he does? Yeah, I think, um, I don't know. It's super tough. I think that there's, there's a mix of things. Like, I think that I, I, I think there's some independent things that make like him really good and, and I really good at certain aspects. But I think what works really well is that we're, we like, we joke and this is not like a real thing, but it's kind of directionally true that like, you know, there's, there's a, there's a certain portion of us, like 30% of each of us that just hates the other person. Um, and then there's like, you know, 70% of us that just really <laughs> loves the other person, if that makes sense. And so yeah. that, that mix, um, it, it causes a lot of like, you know, we see the world very differently. And so when we're making decisions on the marketing side and, and the sales side, like he's giving like very divergent opinions. And when he's making decisions on the product side, I'm, I'm, you know, giving very divergent opinions. And then, you know, a lot of times then there's like, you know, the non-negotiables, I feel like we're aligned on very, very well. And then kind of the other stuff we like will, you know, healthily argue. And it was not as healthy, um, you know, uh, maybe a couple of years ago, but it's just, it's just one of those things where like we are, you know, it, it works out really well. And I think specifically for him, I think what works out really well is he's very um, like, very, very strong opinions loosely held and very, very stubborn in the right way. Um, and then you just have to break that down 
you know, depending on if you, you know, it, depending on the view, right? And I think this works really well. It's exhausting, to be frank, um, mm-hmm. but like one of those things where I think that that's that's the good sign of a product product person is where they should have those strong opinions and then they should loosely hold them. Now, how loosely they hold them, you know, it depends on like the priority and like the, the cost of what needs to get done. Um, you know, and that's where like having that really stubborn opinion, I think is really helpful because if he has a really strong opinion, that's a little bit less loosely held, that's probably a good sign that it's something important. Um, I think that he's, he's not as, um, he just has really, really good instincts after, you know, he's older, he's not a, you know, kid out of school. And so there's some really, really good instincts as well on like how, how the world should be seen and how the world should, should come to fruition, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, so do you also have designers and uh, is there a, a role for qualitative and UX research in your organization? Um, yeah. So we have our, our design team, it's kind of small. <laughs> um, it's that's been the biggest choke in the business. I think that um, you know, it's one of those things where we. I mean, we're sixty plus people, and we have one designer, mm-hmm. uh, and so that's like super, super problematic, as you can imagine, um, because that designer works on all things marketing, and they work on all mm-hmm. things product as well, and so we're just sitting in kind of a world where it's just like, holy cow, there's just so much to do. And so that's, that's been like the biggest choke and it's starting mm-hmm. We're solving it. It's just one of those things that, you know, I don't know if you've tried to hire a designer recently, but it's just like brutally painful, yeah. um, you know, cause there's so many of them and like all that kind of fun stuff. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think that that's, that's one of those things, but yeah, we do a lot of like user testing and like things like that, even, even with those limited resources, um, you know, we're, we're pretty, we're pretty, um, pretty good about that, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, um, how do you use data or how does data drive product decisions in your organization? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, so the thing that, and and we're like a, our products are all data related. And so we're very like focused on, you know, data in general, but I Mm -hmm. think that what we think about is just making sure that data is very, um, is very central to the gravity of the decision. So what I mean by that is like, when you think about testing ad copy, I'm not going to collect a bunch of data to test ad copy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if I'm making a $10 million product decision, I'm probably going to collect a lot of data. And so we're, we're really good about like instinctually and also just from, you know, past experience, understanding, um, you know, exactly what we should be focused on and like the depth through which we need to test things. Um, there's some bugs, you know, here and there that come up just because we're not perfect at this, mm-hmm. but it is one of those things where I think we've gotten really good about like, all right, this makes sense. This doesn't make sense. And yeah, I think it's, it's worked out well. I think the other thing is we, um, we're probably not as fast as a lot of organizations and, that's not because we don't have the ability to go fast. I think it's because we were a little too thoughtful and we overthink things. Mm-hmm. And so that gives us like some survivor bias because by the time we ship something, um, it'll have been really, really well thought out. And so we've been working on like, how do we, how do we kind of like bridge that gap a little bit um, and, and, you know, go even quicker if that makes sense. Um, and the way you do that is typically through adding, adding the right amounts of data. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, 
one thing that I love that you said in there was about sort of the cost of what is the decision impacting and, you know, is it, is it a $10 million investment or something cheap, right? Um, I'm curious um, to hear if, you know, if you think about um, some of our listeners being people who are really in the trenches trying to do this, what are the quick markers that you guys might use to know whether a decision's worth that level of, of um, you know, discovery? Um, yeah, I mean, like money is easy, right? So it's <laughs> like, hey, how many people are we going to, like how many people are going to be involved with X, Y, or Z? That's a really, really big thing. And then there, on top of that, there's like plenty of other like, you know, kind of markers, like, is this a decision that's going to greatly impact, you know, greatly, greatly impact, like some sort of like other aspect of the business. So like, it all comes back to cost. And I think that a lot of times, like, I know that's intuitive, but a lot of times we don't think enough about like the costs of the things that we're doing because like, we're like, yeah, let's just go like build that feature for 18 months. And it's like, hold on a second. That's 18 months. There's not only the actual physical cost of whoever's doing the thing, but there's also like the cost of like all the other stuff that like, you know, you could have built with that cash, if that makes sense. And so- Mm -hmm. Yeah, like long story short, I think that there's like, you know, a ton of stuff that we can fix here um, just as businesses in general, but it, it takes takes a good number of like reps to basically like understand what's going on. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's always, we're always learning and optimizing the things we do, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you mentioned about going faster and the amount of data that is involved in a decision what what did you mean? I think you said um, having more data, you would go faster. Tell me more about what that means to you. What do you think is the relationship between how fast it's moving and the amount of data that um, the team itself is looking at, not the data in your product? Yeah, I think that the thing is, is like we, and, and, and as someone who like has a product that's very predicated on like collecting and understanding data, like this might sound a little blasphemous, but I think a lot of us, like we, we th- there's like two camps. There's one camp that's like, I'm the embodiment of Steve Jobs. I don't need to collect data. I don't need to like look at anything. Collecting data is all going to be biased. So let's just like, let me make these decisions like devoid of any data and things like that. And then there's another camp that's like, if it's not in a data point, we're not doing it. And I think the problem is, is that both camps put, data on the wrong type of pedestal. I think the thing that you have to realize is that all data is going to have some bias and all data is going to have some limits. And also you can't make decisions off of only one type of data. You have to look at qualitative, you have to look at you know, quantitative, you have to look at market data, you have to look at customer data, you have to look at all of these different things, but it is important to make data-based or data-informed decisions. And I think so many of us like, we're so absolutist about what we need to do. And we're so absolutist about, Hey, this is, it needs to be all or nothing. And, and, and I think that that hurts us so much. And a lot of organizations end up missing the mark and they either like analysis or paralyze themselves with analysis or they end up like, you know, basically, you know, running into a brick wall. Yeah. Kind of funny. Maybe, maybe sounds blasphemous with your organization being so much about the data your product provides, but people need to know what to do with it, right? 
I'd love to, I feel like we have a good sense of the product um, that you've built up or how your company builds product. And um, there's one other element of what you do that I am super fascinated in for our listeners, which is more about the experimentation and the research. Um, one of the things that I love about ProfitWell is the the research reports that you guys put out. So I'd love to switch gears and kind of ask you a little bit about that. How do you um, how do you go from you know a listener question or something that you wish you knew to looking through your data and um, how do you how do you know how to design that experiment and how to interpret the results? Yeah, I mean that's unfortunately that's like a at least a ninety minute discussion. Um, <laughs> so I don't want to like minimize it, but like the, the biggest let, let me let me maybe go through the highlights. Um, okay. Like the first thing is understanding what your research question is and, and you can go very formal into hypotheses and you can go, you know, do all kinds of different stuff. But I think that the biggest thing to kind of keep in mind and think about is focusing in on what makes sense and what's the outcome you're trying to go for. Because a lot of us, and I know it sounds like super basic, but a lot of us are like, here's the question we're trying to answer. And then we go out and do a bunch of data collection or a bunch of conversations. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh crap, like, wait, what were we trying to answer? Like, there's all these rabbit holes and all this other stuff. And that just takes so much extra time. And if you focus on exactly what's going on with like the, the question that you're trying to answer, what ends up happening is, is you limit the scope of the data you're going to collect. You put a deadline on when you're actually going to answer the question or get the data or make a decision. And ultimately you keep your momentum. I think a lot of folks that come to us and are like, Oh, solve my pricing. And we're like, okay, that's like maybe a 24 month question, right? Because there's all these different aspects that you can attack. And there's probably definitely things that are more important to attack than others. But I think it's one of those things that like, it's so, so, so crucial to basically attack the right things. And frankly, when you get that right, all of a sudden, like involving the right people. So in a pricing question involving sales, involving finance, involving marketing, involving product, you get all the politics out of the order, out of order in inside your organization. And then all of a sudden, like the data, when it comes back, you can actually have a real conversation about it. You're not dealing with all those politics, you know, up front um, and then kind of like making decisions. I think you have to, again, you understand the limits of the data. Hey, did we collect enough data to feel confident in a $10 million decision um, or changing the ad copy or changing up the brand? Like what are those things that we're, we're going after? And then ultimately there's, you know, there's, um, you know, a lot of other stuff that you can do. Um, I, I think it's, it's a really hard question to answer on a podcast because it's just like, you know, it's kind of like asking like, how do you grow? You know, it's like, well, like there's like the, the theoretical and like the, the top level, like meta answer. And then there's like all the little details. And so hopefully that, that gives some good insight into the overall process, if you will. Yeah, no, that that's a fair, yeah, I, get, I threw you a hard one. That's a long detail. No, question. it's not hard. It's just like, it's a, it's a long question. I don't know if you want me to, uh, you know, basically take up all the tape. I know we're not on tape, but you know. <laughs> well, you know what I think uh, the the high level is helpful, and I'm wondering if maybe there's um maybe we could talk about a specific one like um you know one of my favorite pieces of data that you've produced that I like to share is about what we think we're building and what we're actually building. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how long did it take from when you decided you wanted to answer the question about you know are people doing useful 
qualitative research and useful discovery for their product? And uh, how long did it take from deciding to answer that question to, you know, crafting the um, the actual, I actually don't know. Do you already have all the data in-house? Do you go and run the surveys at the time? What does that process look like? So all of our data collection is in-house. Um, we have some some panels that we've stitched together and that we do, um, you know, quite a bit with. And so, yeah, I think it's 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 something that we've kind of built and, and that's, that is our price intelligently product is like data collection. So it's one of those things, um, you know, that we kind of, we kind of have an advantage in, if you will, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's not something that we did anything, anything like magical, right? It just built it over time. And, And I don't think that people need to go to the extent that we do, because obviously we're doing it for, you know, different reasons. But yeah, it's one of those things that, you know, we, we supremely focus on like understanding and making sure we have the data that we need. Yeah. Yeah, so you, you've sort of got those panels ready. You already have a lot of the existing data, and then you go and add the specific questions for the specific question you're trying to answer. Is that sort of what yeah. it looks like? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's you know, it's seventh grade scientific method. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's really all this stuff is. And I think a lot of people, they just focus a little bit too much on like, let me make this complicated. Let me look for a silver bullet. And it's like, no, just do the work and we'll go from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I like that you mentioned the, the seventh grade scientific method. You know, I'm a big believer that really we're, we're doing science and it's um, the, what it looks like to do science has changed over the centuries. <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, so one other thing I'm sort of curious about, uh, I have to say for, for you in particular, I know sometimes you're some of your marketing or your podcast talk about protect the hustle. Yeah. And I'm curious what that means to you. Ooh, that's a big existential question. Um, <laughs> so to me, so what's funny is so that um, the origin of that is out of, uh, I, so I went to the college I went to on a debate scholarship. And okay. so that was a phrase on the team. And basically the phrase protect the hustle meant, Hey, like, don't like, whatever, whatever it needed, protect the hustle meant whatever it needed to be in the moment. Mm -hmm. So it was a very like amorphous, like it meant like, Hey, make sure you're practicing. Hey, make sure you're not distracting the rest of the team. Hey, make sure you're, you know, getting enough sleep before the tournament the next day. Hey, make sure, you know, you're doing the filing that you need to do. Like, make sure you're doing all these things, like protect the hustle. And the hustle is like the forward movement of basically going up and to the right, if you will, of trying to win or trying to, you know, be successful. And so mm-hmm. to me, it's an all encompassing term of like, protect the hustle. Are you protecting the hustle? And like you, it, it's, it's one of those phrases that you can use to kind of keep people honest and keep people on, in the right direction. And so that's kind of, you know, that's, that's what it's meant. Um, and it, it, it's a bit amorphous, but I think it's, it's one of those things that has meant a lot to me personally. And I think around the office, it's, you know, it's, it's meant a lot too when, you know, people are doing really, really well, like, oh, that's, you know, protecting the hustle. And then people like making sure that they're doing, you know, or, or not doing things that aren't great as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. I love that there's a personal element from your history to it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Awesome. Well, 
I think this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, thank you so much for sharing the perspective on building product and data and research. And um, congratulations on all the great work and success so far. I think you guys are building something incredible. And it's awesome that you're bootstrapping it too. Yeah, thanks. We're, it's, a, it's a labor of love, but there's a lot of strife, as you know, building anything. And so, yeah, always, always moving. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Patrick Campbell. If you'd like to find him online, you can find him on Twitter at Paticus, P-A-T-T-I-C-U-S, or visit his company's website, ProfitWell.com. Thanks for listening. Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you love the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you.